Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Song, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. My absolute pleasure. Uh, glad to be here to join this podcast. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in uh, machine learning and AI. Oh, okay, of course. So I recently graduated from Stanford University, advised by Professor Bill Daddy. So initially, I was doing hardware architecture research. Um, and very, uh, in my PhD, when I started the, uh, my project, my uh, initial goal was to uh, build specialized hardware accelerators to accelerate different ap- applications. Since the, the semiconductor industry has moved from you know single core, multi core, now is the era of uh, uh, domain specific accelerators. And then um, when I when I started my PhD in 2012, that's exactly when AlexNet came. And then uh, ImageNet accuracy is just booming up. So I um, feel like that's a great opportunity to explore domain-specific architectures to accelerate for deep learning and particularly deep neural networks, uh, which used to be pretty slow and takes a lot of computation, lots of memory. And I feel it's a perfect alignment between my previous expertise in computer architecture and also giving, given the uh, uh, the rapid um progress of deep, deep learning to uh, bridge the gap between machine learning and computer systems. So that's how I got into this area. Fantastic. So you've done some work around uh, FPGAs, but also beyond uh, the silicon accelerators to distributed machine learning. Is that right? Right, right, exactly. So in my PhD thesis, I'm focused on most on inference. So focus on most on inference, building uh, specialized architectures for inference, and then prototype it on FPGA due to the low budget of actually taking out a chip. Uh, and most recently, I've been working on not only inference, but also training. Since training large-scale deep neural nets take days or even weeks, which greatly limits the uh, productivity of machine learning researchers. That's why I look into uh, training to improve the efficiency of training as well. And the technique that you've uh, written about recently is one called deep gradient compression. Tell us a little bit about the motivation for that research. So uh, deep gradient compression is a technique to compress the gradient exchange for distributed training. So why do we need distributed training? We want to have more parallelism so that we can try to finish the training in a shorter time. Say previously we, we train ImageNet, it takes about a week. Recently, there's uh, work from from for example Facebook training ImageNet ImageNet in one hour. So increasing the parallelism will decrease the training time. Um, we can through more GPUs and more computation um, to decrease the time for computation compute. But there is another factor that determines how much time it need to train a neural network. That is communication. Since the more nodes you have, the more communication you want to have, because different nodes, they have to exchange their gradients during distributed training, which will limit the scalability of distributed training. Scalability means, with uh, say, with 64 nodes compared with one node, 
you ideally want to have 60, 64x speed up compared with using just one node. But usually, due to the bottleneck of communication or networking, it's hard to achieve 64x speed up. Um, some previous work has achieved super great scalability. For example, Uber's framework called um, Horrorboard and also uh, PyTorch. And so, but usually that require um, a great networking infrastructure, for example, InfiniBand or 40 gigabit Ethernet. But I was motivated by how can we enable such kind of distributed training with cheap commodity networking infrastructure, for example, on AWS, on Amazon AWS. Um, for example, they have a one gigabit Ethernet, but still we want to benefit millions of uh, machine learning practitioners uh, who cannot afford those super expensive, dedicated um, networking infrastructure that Facebook researchers or Google researchers can use. So uh, that motiv motivates me to kind of democratize AI training even on such commodity commodity hardware. Yeah, that motivates me to work on this deep gradient compression. Okay. Can we take a step back and maybe have you walk through uh, on the compute side when we're trying to distribute training, uh, what the different elements of uh, distributed training uh, are? So you talked about you know the need to share gradients. Where does that come from? Um, uh, so let's back up to talk about where the gradients come from. So um, training deep neural nets is using a basic algorithm called uh, gradient descent or stochastic gradient descent most recently. So it's, it's calculating the first order derivative of the weights. So first of all, it's using a convex optimization method to solve a large non-convex problem, um, which require us to get the first order gradient for each weight. So think about it as this. So we are climbing down a hill, for example. Um, which is very similar to do an optimization problem. So you have 360 degrees and you want to choose which direction would you go in order to climb down the hill, right? So a, a faster way, fastest way to, to go down the hill is to follow the direction that is steepest, right? That is an analogy of the gradient. The gradient um, is very analogy to, to the finding which direction is the steepest. And then you follow the steepest path. At each step, you follow the steepest step, and then you will go to the bottom of the valley, right? Um, so that's, that is for a um, single node. And when you have multiple nodes, each node will have a bunch of training images. Say we have four, four different nodes, and each one is finding their own direction, climbing or uh, going down the hill. And then how do you merge them together? So they need to communicate and exchange this gradient through networking. Um, and exchanging the gradient can be pretty bulky. Say AlexNet, it has 240 megabytes of weights. And so it's also 240 megabytes of gradient. For example, um, uh, ResNet 50, uh, it has 100 megabytes. So every iteration, you have to, different nodes have to exchange 100 megabytes of gradient to each other, which makes it a bottleneck uh, for the networking infrastructure. And so does every node need to know all of the 
gradients that the other nodes have worked on? Is this for the to update its own weights? Yes, for synchronized training, it is required, and that's exactly why it requires so much networking bandwidth. Since each node in synchronized training, each node have has to have all the gradient information for its its neighboring nodes. How is the work distributed among the the various nodes that are uh, that are working on a a problem? Is it there? Are they each given batches, for example, to work on, or is there some other? Is it is the gradients distributed randomly, or does that matter at all? Oh, that's a good question. So there are two ways, usually two ways of achieving such parallelism. One is data parallelism. The other is model parallelism. So data parallelism is having different chunks of training data to different nodes. And model parallelism is um, having different chunk of the model across different nodes. Data parallelism is a lot more easier, is a lot easier to implement than model parallelism. So in this case, uh, I'm talking about data parallelism. And in specific, how data parallelism is achieved is by we have uh, the same model on sitting on each node, on each training node, the same model. Model can be a convolution neural net or recurrent neural net. And then we feed different chunks of training data to each node. Say the first node may have a batch of image 0 through 31, and then node 2 may have image 32 through 63, etc. So all the nodes are sharing the same same model, but they are having they are being fed with different chunks of training data. And they calculate their local gradients according to their own piece of data. And then they exchange the gradient uh, to each other. So it's a it can be implemented in two ways. One is parameter server, the other is all reduce. All reduce is simpler, so I will talk about that. So all reduce is by every node after calculating their own gradient, it absorbs, it takes um, the gradient from all the other nodes. And in the meantime, it will also send its own gradient to all the other nodes. So everyone receives everyone's all, all the gradient and then sum it up and then calculate an average. What's the architecture for doing this? From a, an implement, implementation perspective, I can imagine a number of ways of doing this, putting them in some kind of shared storage and having all of the distributed workers pull from that shared storage or using some kind of message passing architecture. Uh, is that something that you've explored, the, the different ways that one could do this? Yeah, there are in general two ways to do this. Uh, the first one is using a parameter server, which is a centralized arbiter. You can think of it in that way. So everyone will send, all the training node will send their local gradients to the parameter server. And the parameter server, by by, by the name, we, we know it's storing the parameters, it's storing the model. So it, it, get, it receives all the gradient from different nodes and then sum it together, sum it up, and add it to the um, shared, the centralized parameter server, and then update the model, and then it broadcasts the model to all the training nodes. So 
for example, you have if you have four training nodes, all the four nodes will send their own gradient to the centralized parameter server to one update, and then the parameter server will broadcast the updated weight to all the training node. And then all the training node starting another iteration of gradient calculation. So it forms a cycle. So that's the first way using a parameter server. And there's a, uh, there's a second way um, using a decentralized way. So the parameter server is a centralized way, right? You have a centralized parameter server. What about a decentralized way? So decentralized way, we usually use this all reduce operation. So for example, you have one, two, three, four, four training node. And then um, still you have a master training node, for example, node one. And then all the node will send their own gradient to node one. For example, node two send it to node one, node four send it to node three, node three send it to node one. So in the end, node one will have the gradient information for all the node. And the next step is node one will broadcast updated model to node two, three, and four. So node one will first broadcast it to node three, and then node one will broadcast to node two, and node three will broadcast to node four. So in this tree structure, um, everyone can get uh, everyone's everyone can get everyone's gradient information and update. So this is just one basic implementation using a tree structure. Um, there is a more advanced implementation with using a butterfly structure. The is it butterfly? Yes, butterfly. Okay. Everyone send a portion of them to the neighboring. So. The idea is still everyone should get everyone's gradient, but in that way, it's more efficient than a tree structure. So in summary, there are two ways, centralized way using parameter server and a decentralized way using this R-reduce operation. Circling back to the to your work in particular around deep gradient compression, uh, what you're trying to do is reduce the communication overhead uh, of that this last step that we've just been talking about. How how do you do that? So the basic idea is to reduce the necessary amount of gradient that we need to find and we need to send. So surprisingly, we find only zero point one percent, only zero point one percent of the gradient that is really needed to be sent out over the network. So the other 99.9%, you can hold it locally. You don't have to send it out. By by 0.1% is the idea that, you know, when we talk about these gradients, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about vectors that need to be moved around. Is the idea that these vectors are, are very sparse, that they're mostly consist of zeros, uh, and you're, you know, spending a lot of, using a lot of your, time uh, and effort moving around uh, these zeros, essentially, that aren't adding uh, information? Right. That's uh, that's the key idea. Although, initially, without any treatment, uh, they are not sparse. Although some of the gradients are super small, they are not zero, but they are small. So the way we deal with it is to sort the gradient and zero away all those 99%, percent, 99.9% the smallest, and then only send out those 0.1%, the, the largest gradient over the network. But simply, naively doing this, only by, by such kind of thresholding and making a dense 
uh, gradient vector to make it sparse will hurt the uh, prediction accuracy. So we found those small gradients, although some of them may be noise, but if we don't if we don't send it out, it will hurt the accuracy. So what we do is to locally accumulate those small gradients for more iterations until it gets large. When it gets large enough, then we send it out. So in this way, we can um, recover recover a lot of accuracy. Oh, interesting. Um, so the the idea there is that you've got your uh, you're training across you know some number of nodes, say ten nodes. You've got uh, each of these nodes is exchanging gradient information uh, via one of the couple of ways that we've talked about. Uh, you found that most of that gradient information isn't useful, uh, but it sounds like the key insight is that it may be useful in the future as that node continues to train. So you don't want to just kind of throw it all away, you know, at each uh, training iteration, you want to continue to accumulate the, the other 99% of the, or 99.9% of the, uh, of the gradient information over time. So, the, and it, you find that some of that becomes useful uh, later on. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the idea. Um, so another way to, uh, that's one interpretation, another way, a mathematical way to interpret that is to increase the equivalent batch size of the gradient. For example, rather than calculate the gradient and immediately send it out and do the update, we accumulate them locally for another iteration, maybe for a third iteration until it reaches a threshold. It's equivalent, say you use th three iterations, then it's equ equivalent to increasing the batch size, almost equivalent, since the, the weight has uh, changed a little bit, almost equivalent um, to increase the batch size by three times. That's another intuitive way to understand this. Mm -hmm. But it's it strikes me that that's a little different in the sense that um, in the initial way you described it, you know, because you're always sorting and thresholding on the communication, but not on the internal state of a node, the information in a particular part of the gradient could stay around for forever for, you know, much more than three iterations of, of the, or three batch iterations. It's highly possible you accumulated very long, um, even more than three iterations, say it can be 10 iterations or 20 iterations. Right. Um, but you don't send it out until it reaches, it reaches top 0.1% of the total, of the total, total gradient magnitude of the gradient. So how do you reconcile that with the the batch interpretation that you just mentioned? Um, so that piece of gradient isn't sent out. It didn't do the update. It's just cal you calculate it and then accumulate across batches. So you just accumulate the batches. So if you exchange the summation, if you exchange the summation, um, you are doing such calculation across T iterations. So it, it's if you put a um, the t in the learning rate and also put a t in the in the denominator, it's in equal to equal with increasing the learning rate by t times 
and also increase the batch size by t times. Okay. So the this batch interpretation uh, is is more is more uh, reflective of what's happening at the system level than what's happening at an individual node. Is that fair? Um, that's a fair uh, interpretation. Mm. Okay. Although it's not one hundred percent mathematically equal, so <laughs> each iteration, the the the, uh, the the weight gets changed. Right. So it's using different weight for different iteration in in real case. Okay. Yeah. So that's not the uh, that's a key idea, but that's not the only idea to recover the accuracy. So, for example, on image. Um, on image classification, just with this local gradient accumulation, we still suffered from 1.6% loss of accuracy. And on uh, language modeling, we suffered 3.3 point uh, loss of accuracy. So I was th- we were thinking, how do we... Um, it's pretty close, like 1%, 3%, but right. it's not perfect. For context, what kind of loss of accuracy did you see with a more naive approach to gradient compression? What oh, you just so thresholding. Pure, right. Pure thresholding and not doing the cumulative locally doesn't converge on either image classification problem or the uh, uh, speech recognition. So it doesn't converge. It just doesn't, no. just doesn't work. <laughs> no, it just doesn't work. Okay. But even, so we added great local gradient accumulation and then it converges. And on Cypher 10, res 110, the original baseline accuracy is 92.9. Now it's 91.36. It's pretty close. And now let's see how can we further close the gap. Is there any loss of accuracy in moving to uh, distributed training at all? Or are we able to you know, fully capture the, the accuracy of a single node solution you know, in distributed training? Unless using super large batch size, and people have already shown using large batch size nowadays can converge really well. So it's almost a consensus that using a distributed training compared with a single node training, we can get very comparable accuracy. Um, although generalization ability is still under 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 discussion, but the accuracy nowadays uh, is almost solved the problem of distributed training using multiple nodes that can achieve the same accuracy as using the same node. Uh, what does that mean? Why would uh, generalization uh, be different between single node and uh, multi node training? Um, that is an unsolved um, problem. Why using large batch size, the generalization ability from one training data set into another data set uh, can't be the same? So that is an un- unsolved problem to interpret why uh, about the generalization ability using large batch training. Uh, but it's um, the the general generalization challenge with distributed training isn't so much relative to single node versus distributed. It's more because in order to do distributed, you increase the batch size, then you introduce this issue around generalization. Right, and, and it, it is only when the batch size is usually too super large, say more than say eight k or even more then this problem begins to appear. Um, okay. Yeah, but it's an orthogonal to this problem of uh, increasing, uh, decreasing the networking bandwidth. Okay. So, so shall we go back to Please. the discussion? <laughs> oh, okay, great. 
So how do we recover those 1%, 3% loss of accuracy? We find we need, so momentum, momentum SGD is usually um, dominant in currently deep neural network uh, training. We are not using the vanilla, the naive SGD, but we are using the momentum, which means we are using part of the previous gradient together with the current gradient. We do a weighted average, having a discounting factor um, to avoid the noise. So say we are seeing, well, okay, we are go going down the hill, we should go this direction is the steepest, but we don't go directly with this direction, but it's a, it's a sum of part of the previous gradient, part of the previous direction we have already gone through, uh, and, and together with the current, the current gradient. So that's called momentum. Okay. And, and with momentum, we are adding the sum, we are summing up the previous gradient with the current gradient, which give a new vector called, called velocity. And we are multiplying the velocity with the learning rate, then subtracted from the original weight. And in this case, we found we should do local accumulation of the velocity rather than local accumulation of the gradient. So accumulate the velocity, not the gradient. Are you using momentum and the velocities throughout, or are you uniquely using the velocities in the accumulation, but using vanilla uh, gradient descent in when you're doing the distributed part? We are using not the vanilla gradient descent, but momentum gradient descent. Gradient descent with momentum. And okay. With that, we used um, just because there's a momentum term in the uh, in the gradient descent, we need to add we need to accumulate the velocity rather than the gradient. Okay, got it. Right, and with this technique, there's a mathematical proof uh, in the paper why we need to accumulate the velocity rather than the gradient, but uh, you can feel free to check out the paper to read the math but here. Uh, just a very intuitive way to understand this is to take into account of the previous gradient, the momentum term, um, so that we need to accumulate the final summation of the gradient and the previous gradient. So we, so we accumulate the velocity rather than the gradient. And with this method, we found the previous 1.5% loss of accuracy now is only 0.36% um, um, image classification, which is closer, but still is not is not the way we want. Still have 0.3% loss of accuracy. But for uh, speech recognition, surprisingly, we found after using this momentum correction, it didn't converge. So there's still some problem uh, we need to, to solve. So shall we move on to the third technique? Sure. Please. To recover the accuracy? Okay, good. Okay, so why particularly for speech recognition, the accuracy even didn't converge using this advanced method because of the gradient managing problem. Um, so previously, uh, those LSTMs and RNs were having this technique called gradient clipping after um, doing the summing up the gradient for all the node to prevent from gradient explosion. And since RSTM has back propagation through time, uh, it's very easy to suffer from either gradient vanishing or gradient explosion. Mm -hmm. And now we are doing the clipping. So 
the denominator will be uh, the square root of the summation of the sum of the sparse velocity from all the nodes. So we found we need to exchange the sequence of sparsification and gradient clipping. We need to move the clip. So previously, do the pruning first, sparsification first, and then do the summation, and then do the clipping. Now, we, what we need to do is do the sparsification and do local gradient clipping, and then sum it up. So we exchange the sequence from uh, between clipping and summation. And in this way, um, each each gradient, even before they get summed up, they are clipped to the uh, to the max value. So it's very unlikely to suffer from local gradient uh, uh, from suffer from the gradient explosion problem. And with this technique, the RSTM uh, for speech recognition finally converged, and the accuracy loss becomes two percent compared with previously three percent. Did you then go back and apply that method to the computer vision problem? Yes, computer vision problem. Now the oh, so for computer vision problem is so gradient explosion is a particular problem for LSTM. Right. It's not a problem, not usually a problem for uh, used in in computer vision tasks, convolution neural nets. Mm -hmm. And convolution neural nets already is it has a very close accuracy. It's only zero point three six percent loss of accuracy. So. That's not a problem. Right. I was thinking of it more from the perspective of, you know, are, are you moving towards a single approach that you can apply to, you know, both of these types of problems? Or are you, you know, do you fork it? Do you determine which problem and then you apply what we previously talked about for computer vision and then you make some tweaks for the LSTM RNN type of example? Um, I would say it's a very general, since um, for CNNs, there are not much bells and whistles. For example, there's gradient clipping is not needed for uh, convolution neural nets. But this is really the inherent, inherently the, um, the way we deal with LSTM. People usually have used this uh, gradient clipping. Then for gradient compression, we also need to apply um, corresponding techniques. Okay. So it's not the new um, trouble people have to deal with. It's all the trouble people have to deal with the gradient explosion problem of RSTM. And then during gradient compression, we also have to take care of that, problem, that right. problem. So just a slight Similarly tweak for, to the way you handled that problem previously. Exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah, so we are very close to success. Only 0 0.36 loss of accuracy on revision and 2.16 loss of accuracy on speech recognition. Now we solve this problem. So we found, uh, as, as we mentioned, those um, accumulating the velocity will take a long time, say 10 iterations, 20 iterations, even 100 iterations. So we did this profiling of exactly how many iterations are those accumulation happens. And we found it's a really, it has a really long tail some of the velocity gets accumulated and broadcasted after 2,000, 2,000 iterations. So you are 2,000 previous, previously 2,000 iterations ahead of time. Now you apply this gradient, which is so obsolete. Then we found it's very necessary to, to cut or 
uh, to throw away, to mask away these kind of obsolete velocity terms. Just like a student, if he didn't turn in his homework for one week, then it's probably fine. But if he didn't turn out turn in the homework for a whole semester, then <laughs> just just fail him rather than continue giving him the chance and interpreting uh, and disturbing other his deskmate, for example. Mm. Um, so by this momentum factor masking, we uh, moved the loss of accuracy from 0.3% to 0.1% in vision. And for speech recognition, it's from 2% to 0.5%. How do you do that in practice? You know, you're, uh, I guess the way I'm interpreting this is you've got this, uh, you're trying to get rid of contributions in a current time step from a momentum, a velocity vector, you know, that's too old. Um, but you're, as I understand it, you're not really keeping around that much state. It's just kind of continual accumulation. How do you identify and get rid of the the older velocity vectors? Uh, so the question is, how do we keep track how long, say, a student haven't turned in his homework and, and how old uh, this uh, how old this this stillness becomes right right right, right. um i forgot the detailed implementation about about the tracking maybe you can turn in uh, turn to the paper to to see our details trying to um keep track of how how, how stale it is yeah that's something okay. i need to turn into the paper for that detail but it's it sounds like then you you are introducing some new kind of bookkeeping scheme to keep track of this. It's not something that that falls out of the the prior implementation very easily. Probably need some counter locally to count that. Okay. And so the impression that I'm getting with this method is that you know it requires a lot of manual kind of massaging of the way that you might otherwise implement uh, your training. Is that the case or you know is it possible to uh, for example, to generically re-implement some libraries in like a TensorFlow or something like that that would uh, automatically do this for you? Oh, let me close up the last technique and then we talk about that question. I think that's a good question. Yeah, so we want to close the last small gap of 0.1% loss of accuracy. And we found that the technique to deal with that is by warm-up training. So in the first 1% of the training, we don't use 99.9% of sparsity, but we use um, uh, but we but, but we use 75 and then 90.95 and then exponentially increase sparsity in the first couple of epochs until it reaches 99.9%. And then in this way, we can we saw the accuracy actually improved by 0.4% on image classification and then improved by 0.4% on speech recognition. So that's closes the whole story that we can fully recover the accuracy. Sorry, what was on the computer vision? What Where did you end up? I thought we were at 0.36 before. Previously, we were, we were losing 0.36 okay. uh, point accuracy. Now we are... Uh, Better. We are having a better accuracy by 0.37 percent. Oh wow! Than the baseline. Okay. Yeah, even better than the baseline. And similar for speech recognition, even better than the baseline. Is this advantage of warm-up training independent of the total number of training iterations? In other words, uh, intuitively for me, 
Uh, I get that the that kind of backing off over time the amount of information you're you know throwing away, so to speak, would accelerate training. Um, but part of me thinks that you know if you let training go on long enough, you'd eventually make that up, uh, and there wouldn't be this big difference you know offered by warm up training. Uh, that's not completely uh, what I meant. So warm up training. So first of all, we are using the same amount of training iterations, same amount of training iterations. Warm up training is just saying for the first one percent of the training epochs, first one percent of the training epoch, we have a less sparsity in the in that part. Right. But right. still, we are having the same amount of iterations. We are not increasing the number of epochs. I understand. I guess I the the question was. If you could achieve the same level of accuracy with more training iterations as opposed to using warm-up training. In other words, the, my intuition at least is that the warm-up training would you know, accelerate convergence but not necessarily get you better accuracy. It just makes it take less time because you're starting with more data. Uh, the reason we use warm-up is due to the first couple of epochs we need to allow those drastic changes of the gradient, which is everything has, has a lot of noise, which would encourage those noise. Right. Uh, but in the end, it's getting more and more stable. Um, we don't need those kind of noise. And naively, just increasing the number of training epochs, it just begins to fluctuate. Of the, uh, the accuracy begins to fluctuate in the later epochs, not necessarily increasing the accuracy. Okay, interesting. So that's why we need immediately in the first couple of uh, epochs to allow the dramatic distur- uh, disturbance of the weight of the gradient. Mm. Okay. So presumably you're starting with uh, some kind of randomized weights. Uh, so this is a way to kind of flush out those randomized weights a lot more quickly in a sense. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then, so, so now we have covered everything. We can go back to your previous question about uh, how about the knobs we need to tune? Uh, it require uh, lots of tuning, uh, lots of knob tuning. So all the techniques we discovered, these uh, different techniques, are due to original method require such, um, for example, uh, momentum SGD. You, you, you have another term of momentum, then we have a recipe to deal with that. If you don't have momentum, then just, uh, just accumulate the, the gradient. Now we accumulate the velocity. And then recurrent neural nets has this local gradient clipping, which is not due to, due to us, but every people just use uh, gradient clipping for uh, recurrent neural nets. So correspondingly, we uh, find our counterpart to, deal, to, um, to make it uh, compatible with gradient clipping. Then that's another technique. And then for warm-up treatment, Similar, that, that's a common sense uh, that during the first couple of iterations, either you use large batch training, uh, you, you all need to allow a certain um, uh, warm-up of the gradient. So we find just 1% of the training epoch works pretty well for different tasks. So no, don't need to tune uh, the warm-up period. Just give it 1% of the time make it have uh, exponentially growth of the sparsity until 99.9%. That works works pretty well. So all these knobs and tricks are based on the original uh, requirements of uh, original different techniques requirement. 
the networks that you used for this, did you, um, presumably you kind of handcrafted these, you know, these tricks required for distributed use. Uh, do you envision or plan to create standard implementations of this or have you already done that? Oh, suddenly, please allow me to suddenly jump to your previous question. I <laughs> suddenly remembered how I implemented the gridded masking. Remember, you mentioned you do we have to book, do the bookkeeping, right? Right. So no, we periodically, periodically clean up, clean up all the other uh, gradient local uh, local velocities. So no matter who delayed by how many iterations, just clear up everything. Ah, okay. Just like. Yeah, yep, that makes so there's sense. no bookkeeping required. Just like every every year we have two semesters, right? One is in winter, one is in summer. And if you don't turn in your homework by summer, then you fail. And similarly <laughs> for winter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any of your future MIT students might be getting a little scared listening to this podcast and how often you're talking about failing them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Just an example, hopefully, to help. Uh, I usually use this kind of fun an- analogy, but uh, uh, I'm usually pretty nice to students. <laughs> actually, the, the students that are doing this work will, uh, I many of them offer to MIT. Uh, this, um, the collaborator we worked on this project, his name is Yu Junlin, um, undergrad from Tsinghua University. We worked together last summer, and uh, I Bring, uh, made him an offer to MIT and also got him a fellowship. I'm usually pretty nice to students. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Great. So I think we're coming up uh, to the end of our time. Is there any other elements of this that you'd like to, to talk about? Yep. Um, yeah. Just now you were mentioning whether to bring up a, to a standard um, implementation. And I'm really looking forward to collaborate with uh, other researchers or uh, companies uh, to bring it to standardize this framework, say in Amazon EC2 or in Google Cloud or NVIDIA Cloud. That will be something to benefit, help democratize deep learning uh, training in uh, commodity hardware. So by uh, compute, not networking. Um, and actually, for example, in I feel there are a few candidates, um, for example, in Horowald, uh, distributed training framework uh, done by Uber. That's a very good uh, thing to start with. And if any students or any uh, researchers are interested in exploring this, I'm happy to collaborate um, to work uh, work together on, on this direction. And in general, on this kind of in, in, uh, improving the efficiency of large-scale distributed training to make it more uh, scalable. And uh, by the end of this talk, I would like to give a small advertisement of my future lab, if you allow. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, at MIT. So I will be founding the Hans Lab. So Han is my last name. And I also represent my research. So H stands for uh, high performance, high energy efficiency hardware. Uh, so lots of hardware research going on in my lab. And A stands for um, architectures and accelerators for uh, artificial intelligence. So architecture means both the computer architecture and the neural network architecture. How do, do we design those smart, compact models that have the same accuracy um, for, neural, uh, for deep learning, for example? And N stands for uh, novel algorithms for neural networks um, and deep learning. And S stands for uh, small 
machine learning models, how do we compress the models, how do we compress the gradients, make it less memory footprint, less computation, more efficient, and also scalable systems. So how do we make deep learning large-scale training more scalable with the linear speed-up as the goal? So that's the vision or that's the mission of Hans Lab at MIT. And um, welcome. Hope to hope we can have more uh, collaborators in the future. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like uh, you've got some really exciting things planned, and I'm looking forward to um, touching base sometime in the future to to you know check in on what you've been up to. Oh, definitely. That'll be that'll be great. Awesome. Thanks, Song. All right. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Song or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 146. If you're a Meetup member, keep an eye on your inbox for some updates on all we've got going on with that program. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.